0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America, NA, member FDSE.
1: Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, Dave Filoni, and John Favreau, as well as the rest of the team at Lucasfilm, have dreamed up over the past forty years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host Brian Gaughan and I are recording this week's show on Tuesday, June 27, 2023, just three days out from the theatrical release of Indiana Jones and the Dial of
0: Destiny. And Brian, you are going Thursday afternoon, right? Thursday afternoon. Um, it's so funny. Remember when they would do a preview show, and it was usually at midnight. Yeah,
1: oh, or the Saturday before. Or- right. That
0: was though. Though that was a great. That was a sneak preview. Yeah. Those were fun. Yeah, they were. Because you saw two movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. But then they do, started doing the midnight shows, and I would go to a couple of those. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't get my family to go. Mm-hmm. But now. They start at three p.m. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> out here, so we got tickets for all four of us in the the reclining Dolby sound theater. Oh, so I'm wow. looking forward. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very cool. I don't, Very cool. Big films like this, I I I spend the money. I break open the piggy bank, and okay. you know, I I have to see it that way. I completely understand it. I mean, face
1: it, it's been eight years now. Since this project was first announced back in, in May of 2015, that's when Kathleen Kennedy revealed that there was a fifth Indiana Jones film in the works. Though George Lucas, right after Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out in May of 2008, began noodling on an idea for a fifth indie film, and, and George reportedly shared this idea with Harrison Ford in the fall of that same year. So. While Harrison Ford was out doing promotion for the Blu-ray DVD version of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, that, that hit store shelves back on, on October 14, 2008. Ford was quoted as saying, George's idea for a fifth indie film was crazy, but great. Which leaves me, did wow. any of that End up in Dial of Destiny, or
0: well, if if it was right away, it would have been a, like a sequel, right? Uh. So you might have had Mutt in it, you might have had um, Miriam in it, maybe even Miriam's father. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I just watched it again, mm-hmm. and it well, of course, it opens wide open to a sequel, mm-hmm. and you know what, Shia wasn't bad; he was pretty good, and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I thought I thought he was a good addition. And I, it would have been great to see them play off each other. Mm-hmm. So have you heard anything, Whether what that idea was? To be honest, no.
1: In fact, I was doing some poking this afternoon about that very same topic because later on the show folks we're going to really do a deep dive into the history of of Indiana Jones we're going to be talking about the the first gentleman who was initially cast in the role but if we're going to go back to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull for a moment kind of interesting that its opening weekend uh, I want to say it did well first of all it was a was a five-day opening, but I want to say it opened over Memorial Day weekend, so it was that ex- sort of extendo weekend, and it did over a $100 million. In fact, I think it might have crept up to close to $150 million uh, over the, the wow. five-day weekend. I bring that up because the box office projections for Dial of Destiny are not in that neighborhood, Brian. In fact... Right now, supposedly in North America, over its opening weekend in theaters, Indiana Jones 5 will, is projected to sell 60 to 65 million worth of tickets, uh, with an additional 75 to 80 million overseas. So combined worldwide box office total for Die of Destiny's
0: opening weekend, 140 million. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. See... That's what I was talking about. Mm. People aren't going to the movies. Well, but, but here's the thing.
1: Not entirely true. I mean, Super Mario Brothers, it's opening weekend in North America... 146 million, Spider-Man okay. Across the Spider-Verse, 120 right. million, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, which you were just talking about going to and, and laughing and pointing out the stuff, uh, 118 million. So and, and even Ant-Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania back in February, 106. I mean, what? then why are they lowballing this? Original Raiders are had a runtime of an hour and 45 minutes. Dial okay. of Destiny has a runtime of two hours and 22 minutes. Okay. So you know from your time of running a theater what that means. That means you cannot physically show that film as many times a day as you can an an hour and 45 minute long film.
0: No, you you lose at least one screening. There
1: we go, there we go. And so that's gonna impact the, the box office potential for this thing. And what's interesting, that is the longest running time to date for, again, uh, you know, the, the, in fact, Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Crystal Soul was two hours and two minutes long. That was the longest one up until that time. Uh, no, excuse me, my I stand corrected,
0: Last Crusade was two hours and seven right. minutes long. Do you think this could be like the Spielberg factor? Because uh-huh. Spielberg is such a tight filmmaker that he knows what to put in a film And how to do it without just putting too much stuff in one bag, so to speak?
1: Uh, That's an interesting question. Because, I mean, think about it. Spielberg, he stepped away from this film in February of 2020. And when I say oh, stepped he was away, actually attached to, he it? was he was going to direct up until February okay. of 2020. And he then assumed an executive producer role. And face it, James Mangold, you know, the the director of this thing, uh, has been working closely with Spielberg and Lucas on the project and Harrison Ford. I wonder how much of this, though, is the, you know, this is the last Harrison Ford. Indiana Jones film. In fact, you and I were at, at D23 and, and Hall uh, right. D23 when he stood on stage and said, this is the last time I'm falling down for you people. For you people, yeah. But at the same time, what's kind of interesting is Bob Iger on the red carpet at, at, at Con last month Said to the presser, this is not the end of this franchise, which that's a man who's looking at what, (laughs) what they paid to make this movie, which is reportedly $295 million, Brian. So wow. this is a guy who like, yeah, we're, we're making more indie movies, you know, but, but how, uh, well, I'll tell you what, we'll get to the how in a moment. Uh, we'll have more news in a sec, but first want to remind you that the news portion of looking at Lucasfilm is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network for a worry-free travel experience every time. Please book online at Destinations. .com. Okay, again, a little more Dial of Destiny news here before we move on to other topics. And again, we were just mentioning Bob Iger's comments about you know the future of the Indiana Jones franchise.
0: Wait, but did he say this before they started like pulling things from Disney Plus and canceling things? I want to say yes. Uh, okay, because yeah, I heard. I mean, the people were going, "Oh, great, we're going to have an indie series," or or maybe. Phoebe Waller is going to be, you know, the next Indiana or they'll grab somebody else or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now, but then that
1: is interesting you say that because, yes, wasn't there a rumor out there about an Abner Ravenwood
0: yes, limited series? series. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then there was also, I think I heard something that said, uh, "I." it may have been Kennedy said, we're going to focus on Star Wars now. Mm-hmm. And then they canceled anything to do with um, Willow and even took Willow off Disney+. Plus. And they didn't say anything about Indy, but they kind of didn't say anything for Indy either. So,
1: All right, let me share what James Mangold, because again, there's a rumor making their own so that the Helena Shaw character, the, the, that's the character that Phoebe Waller-Bridge plays in Dial of Destiny, who's supposed to be Indiana Jones' goddaughter. There was some talk, I guess, initially, uh, or at least rumors out there on the internet, that this is what Disney wanted to do. The goddaughter, effectively, would, would take on the mantle of the rogue you know, explorer. James Mangold, uh, when he got asked about, well, okay, would you, you direct ND6 if they, they made one of these? big <laughs> Uh, around the, the the Helena Shaw character, and, he, he, and you know, it's one of those things where it's like, "Wow, tell us how you really think." Uh, Again, he said, "I'm not interested. I refuse. I just can't do it." The amount of lore and Easter eggs and fan service starts to become antithetical yeah. to any of this stuff at a certain point. It isn't storytelling anymore. It's large scale advertising. And by the way, talking about large scale advertising. Did you see we're starting this Friday, June 30th, uh, there's going to be an Indiana Jones walk-around character appearing at Adventureland at Disneyland Park in Anaheim doing meet and greets?
0: I heard the rumor of it. Is he he going to be outside um, Jungle Cruise and um, Temple of Doom or whatever it's called?
1: I do not know. I know this is supposedly a limited-time offering, and... So, again, I'm just throwing this out here to any looking at Lucasfilm, you know, listeners who are headed to Disneyland sometime over the next
0: week <laughs> to 10 days. All right, I'll try to go to Disneyland. Oh, yeah,
1: oh you'll throw yourself <laughs> on that grenade. You know, wow, will. you will make um, that man. sacrifice. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. I'll appeal to the folks who, who are headed that way anyway this summer. Because what fascinates me about this, in fact... Len and I talked about this on Disney Dish when they did that back in two thousand eight when Disneyland sort of teamed up with Lucasfilm to promote Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and they had a Indiana Jones and the Secret of the Tiger Temple or something out of fact they staged in the Yeah, old...
0: where the the, the old um... Tahitian Terrace, yeah, or the, the, which
1: yeah. got retooled into the Aladdin's Bazaar Cafe. I'm, I'm blanking the name here, but see,
0: I remember all of those. I remember the the first one. I remember the Fire Eaters. I remember the Aladdin one. But I don't know why. Maybe because it wasn't on my. Um, well, I saw the movie and mm-hmm. everything, but I didn't go. I don't know why I didn't go to Disneyland at this time and see that. But I didn't. I didn't know anything about it. It sounds like it was. A lot of fun, yeah, and and something and something different. The thing that's
1: kind of intriguing about what they did then—remember, this is when Lucasfilm still owned Indie Outright and Star Wars and the like—and one of the terms and conditions they made for bringing this into the park for that summer was oh, that
0: that's right,
1: Indy couldn't pose for photos, Indy couldn't sign autographs, he couldn't do meet and greets, and for a lot of little kids who'd come to see the show, you know, the fact that Indy, well, I got to go, kid, and, you know, run out of the theater, and then he'd, like, do, they'd do stunt show stuff on the rooftops of Adventureland, but he he wouldn't come down and interact with the guests. That really became a sore point with families visiting the park. It's like, look, you know, my kid gets to hang out with Mickey,
0: but not Indy. Yeah. Was that that for the stunt show in Florida, too, that they, they didn't have any meet and greets there either? That's a very
1: interesting question. I will have to check on that.
0: Okay, because it just seems... Because I remember every film that was ever released, Mm -hmm. there would be some kind of um, walk-around. I mean, I remember Tarzan. That was the best. Mm -hmm. The guy who played Tarzan was just amazing. Mm -hmm. And like every film that came out, live action or animation, Mm -hmm. there was a a walk-around. Mainly, you know, there were... Like Tarzan, he was a face character. Mm -hmm. Is that what it's called? A face? Well,
1: typically a Disney princess or, you know, their boyfriend or that sort of thing. Again, you know, the, the characters, you know, the rubber heads. That, right. you know, But again, I don't think they've called them, them those since the 60s. All right. Somebody who works in the zoo crew. And I'm probably dating myself also there because that's what they used to call the folks who did the, 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 <laughs> the characters in the park back in the 90s, the zoo crew. If, if somebody uh, wants to get, old. Us, yeah, get us the proper <laughs> terminology, that would be great. Anyway, circling back now to, to Mr. Mangold, who, he does not sound happy with the internet. Particularly those folks who have been criticizing Dial of
0: Destiny before Frame 1. Without their even seeing it.
1: Well, and what are the point before? Which blows it, it went, my mind. It went before the cameras.
0: Oh, really? That far
1: back? Well, this is the interview that Mangold did with io9, and is quoted as saying, Early on, there were some people who were knocking the picture before I had even started shooting it. And I thought, probably stupidly, because there's no way to have a kind of fair dialogue in these forums. I, I thought, if I just pointed out that, why did you let me make it before you rip it apart? That it would actually engender some sort of human response? But the problem is, it doesn't. And what was mystifying for me for a couple of months was... You'd be reading these things about your movie that were not just wholly untrue, but were completely made up. And the way the echo chamber of the Internet works is if one person says it and then says, I heard a rumor, you can then report that I read a report. And then you've got a more legitimate institution and someone can go, well, I read on Gizmoid, a reporter of a rumor. And then suddenly this whole thing starts to have a life of its own and, and you're battling it. And it's complete fiction. There's an idealist in me, and I keep going. If I just tell people the truth, won't they believe me? And then I realize, no. There's <laughs> whole world that views me as a part of some elite conspiratorial effort to undermine something, and I'm not. I'm just a guy who loves movies, who's trying to live through each day and do the best I can, knowing that I can't possibly please everyone. And it's like, oh, man, I, I've been working this side of the street. Since, dear Lord, 1998. And so that's 25 years on the web. Woof. And look, Mr. Mangold is not wrong. It is fascinating how something completely outrageous and totally untrue can get said in one corner of the internet. And then someone else will share that rumor, which
0: somehow makes this completely false piece of gossip seem legit. Well, it's those YouTube guys too mm-hmm. that they they want as many eyeballs on them as possible, uh, and I guess I think you and I were talking about this, or I was talking about my friend. Negativity mm-hmm. is more of raw meat than positivity.
1: You, you're not wrong, and and also and people giving- just
0: like to make up things. I mean, here's. Um, Kathleen Kennedy getting an extension uh, three year extension to go on and do what I think she's been doing a great job. Mm-hmm. And they spin it mm-hmm. to make it a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh my gosh, am I, am I just not? And then I try to talk to my kids about it mm-hmm. and they they don't they, they tell me mm-hmm. that it's just it's a generational thing. Mm-hmm.
1: For me, what's fascinating, and in fact, we we went to Nancy's 50th high school reunion just this past weekend. Oh, wow. And I got to interact with with some of her classmates. And we won't get into specifics here, but there was one person in general who, you know those people who live to be outraged, who are sort of seeking something to be offended by? She has a classmate who does that. Every conversation sort of s- steered to something that you know. I could have literally picked up my phone and hit Google. At well, that's not true.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, it's like yeah.
1: it's like no, I can show you that's not true. But why let the truth stand in the way of a good story? So uh, eventually, I just sort of disengage. You know, back away.
0: Well, you had a lot of self control to do that because. I can't do that. I bring out the Google and I'm just going. Well, what is this? I mean, I had somebody tell me that vitamins mm-hmm. are will cause memory loss, mm-hmm. and <laughs> I said, "Well, send me the article." Mm-hmm. They sent me the article, mm-hmm. and it said the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. That vitamins, a, a daily vitamin, actually helps. Mm-hmm. Stop memory loss. So it's like...
1: <laughs> it's at that moment, it's like, well, is there are, a vitamin out there for reading comprehension? Maybe you should take oh, yeah. that. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> a focus Adderall. There you we know. go. Like, there we go.
1: All right. Now, speaking of trying to deal with, uh, you know, uh, false info on, on the internet, uh, you know, uh, Lucasfilm, uh, actually trying. Star Wars Celebration in London back in April, Kathleen Kennedy revealed that there are three Star Wars films Being ready for theatrical release, Uh, they're you know Project Interactive Development,
0: but they were not the same three that were announced eight months earlier. A lady is allowed to change her mind. You've been a husband long enough. You should know this.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. All right. So anyway, one of these films uh, is supposed to continue the storyline of Rey Skywalker, the character that Daisy Ridley played in the most recent Disney produced Star Wars trilogy. And all we really know at this point about this new Ray movie is Charmaine Obaid Chinoy. She's a 45-year-old Pakistani-Canadian filmmaker who's already won two Oscars for her work in the documentary shorts category. She's been tapped to to supposedly direct this project. Now, mind you, that didn't stop production weekly from posting a brief story synopsis. The film uh, reportedly follows Rey as she rebuilds the the Jedi Order and works with two young students who've shown a tremendous gift when it comes to the the Force, not to mention we supposedly have a name for the film, uh, Star Wars New Jedi Order. Oh, really? uh, And even a supposed start date for this production, which is April of next year. Now, after this info was posted on Production Weekly, Lucasfilm took... The unusual move of reaching out to Gizmoid, which shared this info to, to, with its readers through uh, IO9, to state on the record that, <laughs> for starters, story synopsis is accurate. Film's title is a placeholder and likely to change further on down the line. You know, go further. Ray will be featured in the film, but may not be the lead character. And finally, okay, okay, the film's proposed start date, as mentioned in the production weekly listing, is currently correct, but that said, due to the ongoing writer striking, is likely to be pushed back. And I mean, I love that Lucas is out there trying to correct this info but at the same time this part is all wrong that part's car- partially true this part's true but likely to change I-, I don't know if that's gonna
0: do more harm than good here does um Glucas film or disney have maybe this is something they should think about mm-hmm. A lot of this information is put out, especially on YouTube, about mm-hmm. you know by these guys who mm-hmm. you know they're, they they feel that they they own Star Wars themselves or anything like that. Could we get somebody to? you know put out a magazine you know or or do something that <laughs> that would basically just like okay here's a rumor here's the truth here's a rumor here's the truth here's what we want to do here's what we were going to do but we changed it to this and and things like that i mean you you mentioned about the director yeah, okay. i mean yes she's won a couple academy awards mm-hmm. but she made one of the best disney plus mm-hmm. series of um marvel girl no oh, okay yeah, she 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 directed that mm-hmm. too, which was like amazing, especially the part about the separation of India and Pakistan, mm-hmm. which I did not know. Mm-hmm. It oh was God, like it, that. Yes,
1: that episode of Miss Marvel. My oh, my God, yeah, Miss Marvel. Okay, not my Marvel mistake. Girl. Miss Marvel. Okay,
0: and then another thing is like she was originally going to be directing mm-hmm. the uh, Damien Linderoff mm-hmm. script and, <sighs> and then they took him off of it, mm-hmm. but they kept everybody else on it. Not the writer, but mm-hmm. everybody else. So do you think there are going to be some elements of, of Linderoff? I know Linderoff said, you know, they're, they're not crazy about this at this time, mm-hmm. but I'm still going to do, you know, keep on doing it. Cause I love star Wars and I want to be a part of this.
1: I have sort of pivoted in the way I view Star Wars these days. I'm perfectly happy to sit at home and, oh, yeah. and watch. In fact, for example, we have uh, Ahsoka, you know, Star Wars Ahsoka, uh, you know, debuting, oh, uh, you wait. know, Wednesday, August twenty third. In fact, this coming weekend, down at the Essence Festival of Culture, uh, which is being held in New Orleans, June 29th through July third, uh, Disney is actually presenting. Three panels on Saturday and Sunday. They've got a panel about their new Haunted Mansion movie, which looks surprisingly good. I'm I'm kind of surprised at how much I want to see that. Uh, Likewise, they're going to have a panel on Disney's Wish, which uh,
0: Drew just talked up about what he saw. and What Drew said about it, Mm -hmm. it made me... At first, I wasn't crazy about it. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see this film now.
1: It's one of these things where it's like, okay... That sounds interesting. You know, all, all right, I'll be there on November 22nd. Take my money. Yeah, now. But also, uh, they're going to have a panel on Ahsoka. And did you see Dave Filoni's most recent comments on Star Wars Ahsoka? <laughs> How he,
0: it's basically going to be season five? Five of Star, Star Wars, Wars Rebels. Rebels. Yeah. Um, I mean, because that's the way it's it ended. It ended right at the... But then... Mm-hmm. But see... Ahsoka wasn't the main character to you know to want to go after Ezra. Mm -hmm. It was um, Sabine. Is that her name? Well, yeah, Sabine Wren. Yeah, Sabine wanted to go, and then Ahsoka said, "Okay, I'll go with you." Mm -hmm. I mean, wasn't it? And now it's going to be, I, I, okay, I'm getting too excited. Okay, (laughs) well, uh, to explain what
1: Brian is enthusing about, uh, if for those of you who did not see. Farewell, the last episode of season four of Star Wars Rebels, we saw a pod of Purgles, those space-going whale creatures that live in hyperspace, who were following sort of Ezra Bridger's lead, and didn't they take Ezra and Grand General Thrawn off Uh, to parts unknown in hyperspace? So we we don't, in fact, that's, as the show is ending, we've jumped ahead five years. It's after the Battle of Endor. And we see uh, Sabine Wren, the Mandalorian graffiti artist and bomb maker, teaming up with Ahsoka. And, and in fact, we see her working in a mural of, of everybody from Star Wars Rebels. And But then they, they climb right, into that a crowd. It, it, didn't they basically say they're, they're, it's time to bring Ezra home, right? So that they, right. they head off.
0: But then in The Mandalorian, Mm -hmm. you notice how she's going around asking where Thrawn is. Yeah. Not where Ezra is, but where Thrawn is.
1: Now, it's interesting you bring that up because the official logline for Star Wars Ahsoka is... Set after the fall of the Empire, Star Wars: Ahsoka follows the former Jedi Knight Ahsoka Tana as she investigates an emerging threat to a vulnerable galaxy. Which, reading between the lines here, and also uh. fr- from that image from the back of his head, gotta be Grand Admiral Thrawn. You know, and, and, and what are the point? What what was it? That episode in season three of Mandalorian where. Ahsoka flat out ask the woman she's doing battle with, "Where is Thrawn?" Is
0: Thrawn, yeah, right.
1: So, okay.
0: Who I hear is also going to be in the the Ahsoka series. That person she fought.
1: Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah,
0: I think I, I read that, or I saw, or maybe it's going to be a flashback or something. Okay. All right. So yeah. So but
1: Thrawn, and 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 more to the point, we did see. Just in this past season, a lot of people talking about Thrawn, all of that. So it's like the, the stage is clearly set. And so, again, looking f- forward to what Dave Filoni's, you know doing here and how, you know, all these, these shoes <laughs> that have been waiting to drop for a long, long time are finally dropping. And, and, and speaking of wardrobe related things and a long, long time,
0: did you see the story about Princess Leia's dress? Oh, no, I didn't hear that. this one. Are they selling it or well, something? Well,
1: no, no, no. Okay, the dress we're talking about is the one that Princess Leia wore in the medal ceremony at the very end right. of the original Star Wars movie. It has been missing for 47 years, thought to be lost forever, only to recently be discovered in an attic in London that was once owned by a New Hope crew member. Uh, So to be specific, this dress, which was designed by Academy Award-winning costume designer John Molo, he actually took home the Academy Award that year for his work in the original Star Wars. This was uh, the 1978 Academy Awards. It's described as being... Cream, lightweight silk fabric, and evolving intricate draping, which for two guys like us who eat far too many tacos, you know, just, just the dry cleaning builds a lot. I
0: know, but the significant others may be okay in <laughs> That's
1: an interesting point.
0: Okay. I want to say one more thing about um, about Ahsoka, though. Okay. I just About this whole, did, You did you read science fiction when you were a kid? Asimov? Did you read any of the Asimov stuff we're skating on thin
1: ice here I mean I, I, I come from a family of great science fiction readers my dad, my brother Peter you know Frank Herbert Asimov no I was I was the guy who I, I couldn't even do the Hobbit. All right, which I know is a fantasy, but uh, but again, I couldn't do right. the Dune books. I couldn't, I, I just, I lacked no, the science fiction gene. On the other hand, I love Star Trek, too. love Star Wars,
0: it, except Doctor. I love detective stories. Okay. And when Asimov wrote the R. Olivo, mm-hmm. Oliver, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, detective stories about the robot detective mm-hmm. in Caves of Steel and et cetera. Mm-hmm. He wrote three basic series. He wrote Empire, he wrote uh, Foundation, mm-hmm. and he wrote the detective series. What he did is when he was done with those series, he then wrote books that connected these series. Mm-hmm. So Empire was... Or actually, the detectives were first that went into Empire that went into foundation mm-hmm. and I see Filoni mm-hmm. and Favreau and the rest of them doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're taking these little aspects of star Wars and they're putting them together with the bad batch, mm-hmm. with um, the Jedi mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. and also with Ahsoka and Mandalorian. And what they're doing is they're filling in the pieces mm-hmm. To make them a whole, and to connect them, and that's you know this is, I think Ahsoka is going to really tie a lot of things together, and then the movie that he's going to do afterwards will tie into probably the new um, the new order, etc.
1: What I, I've been hearing about the Filoni Film Project, and again, I, 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 I was just complaining about people you know, passing you know rumors off as yeah. you know, a hard fact. <laughs> <cycle>. What <laughs> friends at Lucasfilm have been sharing with me is basically it said, look, what Dave's attempting to do with his film is basically it's going to be the Avengers of, of Star Wars. It's going to take wow. all of the characters that you love and bring them together in one film. Now mind you, you know, when we say all the characters that you love, we're talking a lot of the characters you've been introduced to from the limited series. And them all coming together for one grand adventure, upping the scale of the storytelling. But again, that's all I have. The the, the basic concept I have. No story threads, I have no titles, I have no casting. I have the concept, and even then, subject to change, so. Oh, yeah.
0: But it's still, it's exciting to hear something like that, Mm -hmm. because like I said, it's gonna wrap everything together. And speaking of wraps,
1: we have to get back to the (laughs) dress here for a moment. Okay, so. That dress, over the past eight months, has been lovingly restored by hand. And over the next three days, folks, we're talking June 28th through the 30th, it will be one of the items auctioned off by the Prop Store. They are doing a Star Wars memorabilia auction live out in L.A. uh, over the next three days. And if you want to eyeball some of the items that will be coming up for bid, head to the Prop Store's website, which can be found at... Prop store auction.com all one word. By the way, just in case you're wondering, uh how much that dress from the award ceremony at the end of, of New Hope.
0: Three thousand dollars. Several more zeros. Try two million. Oh my goodness. So I wonder how much the, the bikini would go for. <laughs> Of course, there's not a lot of material in it, so it's got to go for half I, Okay, price,
1: really. we, we, we are <laughs> treading on such thin ice here.
0: Is it time for a break? It's time for
1: a break. When Brian and I get back, we will use the recent cancellation of a TV remake as an excuse to talk about who almost got to play Indiana Jones back in 1980. Did you see the news last week that NBC was canceling the Magnum PI remake?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it's because CBS is doing Matlock. No, I'm just kidding.
1: Well, no, no, no. It, it, it's interesting you bring up CBS because, again, CBS is where the original Magnum PI series debuted back in 1988 in fact, December of 1980, ran for eight seasons. But that was also the place that initially did the remake. Of Magnum P.I. they, they I, right. I, I want to say that it ran for four seasons there, got canceled last year, and NBC picked it up for one more season. And here we are. We bring this up tonight, folks, because out ahead of the theatrical release of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, if CBS executives had been a little more flexible back in 1980... The star of the original version of Magnum P.I., Tom Selleck, would have played the lead in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was released at theaters back on June 12th, 1981. And this is kind of the part of the story that the folks at Lucasfilm really like to sort of step around and smooth over, you know, because it's like, you know, the whole notion that Harrison Ford wasn't George Lucas's first choice to play Dr. Jones... (laughs) <laughs> now mind you supposedly Steven Spielberg right from the get go pushed for Harrison Ford to play this part and uh, as oh, okay. as the story goes Lucas showed Spielberg a work in progress cut of of Empire and he's like ah oh, Ford is great you know and and they had been developing Indy for for quite a while at that point and, and let's get Harrison but Lucas was resistant, and not for any reason. I mean, Ford had been his usual nose and nonsense low-drama guy on the set of Empire. And George had worked with him for years, I mean, ever since uh, American Graffiti.
0: Yeah, but even after American Graffiti, he wasn't sure to have um, Harrison in the original Star Wars. I mean, Christopher Walken was up for he was, an Al Pacino. He
1: was. Uh, this is all true. This is all true, and in fact. So I
0: can see why he he would just think, well, you know what? He makes a good um, cabinet, so you know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he did. Should... <laughs> in fact, no, I, that, that brings to mind that supposedly that
1: you know how many of the people who came in for Leia and and Luke wound up reading sides with. Harrison Ford, because he was in the office building bookshelves for George Building Luke. bookshelves, yeah. Yeah, and so it was like, and he, you know, that, that was the thing. Eventually, it was like, you know, I, I keep hearing Harrison's voice in my head. And it's like, well, you keep having him read with other people. And that's how he wound up with with Han Solo. But we're talking about Raiders now. And, and what's interesting is Mike Feiton, the casting director for Raiders, initially brought in anyone in Hollywood Back in the the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, and the list is just kind of stunning. I mean, it's like Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Jack Nicholson, Peter Coyote, Nick Nolte, Sam Elliott, Tim Matheson, and Harry Hamlin.
0: Peter Coyote would have probably been really good. Oh, yeah. But I mean, any of them could, I mean, especially under Spielberg's direction, they Anybody could have taken it and made it, the, but there was just something about Harrison. He was just so natural.
1: Now, uh, b- before we, we get ahead of ourselves here, okay. now,
0: now remember, this is a work in progress.
1: In fact, Lawrence Kasdan, when he was hired to do the script for Indy, he said what was fascinating is that George and Stephen had these set pieces that they wanted in the movie, Okay, and they had their MacGuffin, they had their Ark of the Covenant, but it was Kazdan's job to create the connective tissue. So, the early, early iteration of the script, in fact, I've got a copy of the original Kazdan script for it. And what's fascinating is the scenes that, for a lot of people, take them out of Temple of Doom. Because they're they're kind of too jokey. They're too silly. Right. Like the the eating of the
0: the bugs and stuff well, like
1: that? Well, there's three scenes to be specific. There's the scene at the nightclub in Shanghai with the dancing right. girls and the gong. There's the scene where the plane, the pilots have jumped out. And the way that Indiana Jones and Teddy, I, I'm blanking the name of, right. you know, the way they survive is they throw the inflatable raft out and it, it lands on the mountainside and they slide <laughs> down. And then there's the the mine chase that looked like a Disney theme theme park
0: attraction. This was a sequel to 1941. Oh, well, you see, now this is what happens. It's this just- this was taking the idea of making um, it's a Mad 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 World and putting into Indiana Jones. Well, I
1: you know, am I wrong? No, I mean, well,
0: <laughs> here's the thing. I mean, think about it. The
1: original Star Wars is obviously an homage, a tribute to Buck Rogers and... And And samurai films. But again, the movie serials of the, the 30s. So the notion was when Spielberg and Lucas were working on the original indie movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the thinking was, you know, are we going back to the well once too often? You know, if we're doing another homage to movie serials... Shouldn't there be another element here? Should Maybe we could do a spoof. So these bigger, funnier, over-the-top scenes, and again, you're not wrong about the 1941 thing, is that Spielberg, while they're developing this, is directing 1941 and is really getting a taste for these big, over-the-top action set pieces. But then, of course, when that comes out in December of 79 and doesn't do particularly well at the stateside's box office, Spielberg hits a reset button, and it's like, okay, we're going to be serious, we're going to be sincere. And so the notion
0: of bringing in a Chevy Chase or a, a Bill Murray or a... Okay, so that was that's why the first list was basically comic heavy, because they were going to make a funny version of the serials.
1: Well, now, this is where it gets interesting. Okay, so they, they do all the readings, and it now comes down to two choices. One of which is Jeff Bridges. And the oh. other is Tom Selleck. Now, Mike Feiton is heavily pushing for Jeff Bridges, who's obviously not an unknown at this point. I mean, you know, did uh, King Kong. King Kong. Uh, also did Thunderbolt and Lightfoot with Cleesewood. Right. So, what Fighton likes about Bridges is Jeff is just coming off of Heaven's Gate which nowadays, uh, because we can see the original Michael Cimino cut of that film rather than the one that the studio shoved down his throat, now that's very admired. But back in, you know, 1980s or thereabouts, right. that Michael Cimino film was considered the height of Hollywood excess. know, it costs $44 million to make, only makes $3.5 million in ticket sales. And so post-Heaven's Gate, Jeff Bridges is now looking for something commercial, and the idea of playing the lead in a film directed by Steven Spielberg, you know, the the Jaws and Close Encounter guy, and and produced by George Lucas, Mr. Star Wars, very, very appealing to Mr. Bridges. Bridges was even willing to sign a contract that would have roped him into playing Indiana Jones, not only in Raiders, but for two yet-to-be-written sequels. And better yet, this is what Fighton is selling to Spielberg. It's like, because Heaven's Gate has dinged Jeff Bridges' box office, uh, he's now willing to sign on to do the first indie at well below his usual quote. So you're gonna get a name star in Raiders for a bargain. Now, mind you, this sort of sweetened the deal. There would have been language in Bridges' deal to the effect of look, if there's your Raiders makes money, we will of course revisit the salary situation for the two sequels and yada yada. So this seemed like a solid plan for Raiders, a known movie star in that film's lead role for a Bargain Price. But standing in Mike Fighton's way is Marsha Lucas, George Lucas's then-wife. Marsha and George wouldn't divorce for another three years yet. Uh, The the split wouldn't become official until June of 83 after uh, Return of the Jedi came out. But even though Tom Selleck's acting resume at this time is mostly working for television uh, appearances on TV series like The Rockroot Files or in in miniseries like The Sackets. Marshall Lucas really liked how Tom Selleck looked in his Indiana Jones audition. You know, He kept telling George, this guy's going to be a star someday. You should cast him.
0: Are there any pictures out there of him wearing the Indiana Joe's garb? I know they comped together some posters,
1: and he literally looks like he stepped out of... Was it Ralph McQuarrie that did the, the four production paintings that they used? For to, Indiana Jones? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Okay,
0: good. Now, did he have the mustache? I want to say yes. Okay.
1: Okay. But anyway, all right. So anyway, getting back to Marsha Lucas. I, I, given that Marsha's advice to George... What he was making American Graffiti, as well as the original Star Wars, as well as its first sequel, Empire, had proved to be invaluable. I mean, Marsha, oh, yeah. Marsha brilliant storyteller and a world-class editor in her own right. George heeded Marsha's advice and persuaded Stephen that, look, maybe we should cast... This relative unknown, uh, Tom Selleck, is is Dr. Jones over the clearly much better known Jeff Bridges. And, and, and now don't feel bad for Jeff Bridges. <laughs> okay, so he loses out on playing the lead in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but he almost immediately accepts a role in the very next high profile, sure to be commercial project that comes his way, which turns out to be Disney's very first Tron which took a while to get to the screens because, you know, obviously all the effects work. That was uh, July 9th, 1982. But back to Tom Selleck now. Given the way showbiz works, Selleck goes from being the guy who guest stars on The Fall Guy and Taxi to overnight becoming the guy who, because he's just signed with this new Spielberg film, gets his, he's made six pilots that have not been picked up. But now, because, ooh, he's going to be making the Spielberg movie, CBS picks up his next pilot, which is for Magnum P.I. For the first season of any TV show, it's traditionally the network. Not the production company, which in this case was Glenn A. Larson Productions, the company behind Battlestar Galactica and Knight Rider. Or the studio where this show was being shot, which in this case was Universal Television. But but it's the network that has all of the power. And this time around, the network is CBS. And when it came to the first season of Magnum P.I., CBS had a deal with Glenn A. Larson Productions and Universal Television that the talent which had been contracted to appear in this new action drama would be available for the production of at least 13 episodes with an option to then move forward with an additional nine episodes. And what's the turn of phrase they use here? The the back nine, right? Like the right. the back nine holes of a golf course.
0: Yeah, if they do well, I mean, the, then they can... They'll put up the back nine, Mm -hmm. and they'll have a complete 22-episode season. If it doesn't do well or what they think is is well, Mm -hmm. they will um, then cancel it, Mm -hmm. and then they didn't spend a lot of money.
1: There we go. All right, now rumors had begun to spread around town that Tom Selleck was up for the lead in this new film that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were about to make uh, for Paramount. And so CBS preemptively signs Tom to do Magnum P.I. So that's the first contract. And then Spielberg and Lucas actually do sign Celtic to appear in Raiders. But Raiders has a locked-in release date of June 12, 1981, which means in order to finish the film in time, this thing has to be before the cameras, no later, then June 23rd, 1980. Basically 50 weeks to get the film shot, edited through effects work, scored, into theaters. But production of the first season of Magnum P.I. is supposed to run through the first week of July of that same year, 1980. So in order for Tom Selleck to play Indiana Jones and in Raiders, he's gonna need to be completely done with working on Magnum P.I., by June 22nd, 1980, absolute latest. I mean, literal finish on the 22nd on Magnum, pick up doing Raiders get the very next day. But again, everybody has to agree to this. So first, Spielberg and Lucas go to Glenn A. Larson Production and ask if Celtic can be sprung for Magnum PI's his obligations there on June 22nd. And they say yes and then Stephen and George go to Universal Television and ask for their help in getting Tom cleared to start work on Raiders and again this is Universal this is where Steve made Jaws it's like of course of course Mr. Spielberg absolutely and (laughs) by the way can we talk to you about another Jaws movie so now Spielberg and Lucas go to CBS and instead of the quick yeses that they got from officials at Glenn A. Larson and Universal Television it takes the suits at the Tiffany re- Network weeks to say eventually about said No, we, we can't release Tom Selleck early to work on Raiders because, all right, here's the thing, Brian. I've never really been able to get a straight answer as to why CBS dug in their heels, where they wouldn't agree to release Selleck early out, out of Magnum PI. That said, it is worth noting that the Star Wars Holiday Special did air on CBS in November of 1978. And given that George Lucas wasn't exactly shy about talking about how Um. badly he thought this two-hour long presentation had turned out, uh, and, and in fact, George was really quite vocal about all of these sitcom stars like Harvey Korman that they foisted onto the show. And so what I've heard, over the years, is that CBS preventing Tom Selleck from appearing in Raiders might have been a little bit of payback for what George said publicly about the Star Wars holiday special, which the thinking was that CBS, they spent all that money. They wanted something they could air every year, and it only aired
0: that one time. I don't know that. That just seems too petty. Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> Welcome to show business. What, pal. what am I you saying? Know. What am I saying? You, you know, you, if you give a, a somebody the wrong coffee with too many sugars in it, yeah. you know, you're off. You're out right of the in industry. Nowhere, man. There we go. Nan. There we go. Yeah. So it it doesn't. But it, doesn't, it still doesn't make sense to do that, too. Uh, no doubt. I mean, but Tom Selleck mm-hmm. didn't do anything wrong. No, no, and no, no. this no, would no. have just made, because no. he would have gone back to Magnum PI, and this just would have made his Q rating even better.
1: Uh, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But to get back to the problem at hand, okay, they had done this decision. It's literally weeks before production of Raiders is supposed to get underway and this is when Spielberg and Lucas learned they've just lost their star. CBS flat out refusing to release Tom Selleck, so they now have to find somebody to play indie and fast.
0: And Harrison Ford was making shelves (laughs) in in Spielberg's office, uh, and he goes,
1: wait a minute. Now, we'll get to Mr. Ford in a moment, but I want to point out the supreme irony here, especially on the heels of what's going on right now uh, out in L.A. with the Writers Guild strike back in 1980, summer of 1980, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists goes on strike, which then disrupted production of Magnum PI. And because this job action lasted till October 23rd of that same year, this means Tom Selleck could have actually been free to shoot Raiders because production of season 1 of his TV show was halted. And in fact, you mentioned, you know, the whole notion of the the 13 episodes, right. the back nine uh, 22 episodes, first season of Magnum P.I., only 18 episodes because, again, production got disrupted by this job action. Now, mind you, nobody in the late spring, early summer of, of 1980 knew this job action was going to happen. All that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg now knew is they needed a new lead actor for Raiders. And and by the way, circling back to Jeff Bridges is no longer an option because, as I mentioned, Jeff has agreed to do Tron at Disney. And in the interim, he's now shooting Cutter's Way for MGM UA. So this is when Spielberg... (laughs) so to look at us. Call Harrison Ford now. Yes, I need some show. You know, no, that's exactly. And and and, <laughs> and to Stephen and George's great relief, they offer him the part of Indiana Jones. Uh, you know, with the understanding the film would begin shooting in four weeks time. Oh my goodness! And Harrison almost he had to get in shape. Well, in four weeks? I, I, I think if you look at, I mean, half the charm. For me, uh, right, uh, right, it, was he was a professor? Well, no, that's it exactly. And you know, the the whole when he got beaten up in that movie, he looked like he was really getting beaten yeah. up. So let's get to that almost immediate. Yes, Empire Strikes Back wouldn't be released to theaters till May twenty first, nineteen eighty. So that's a couple of weeks ahead here, and no one knew at that time. That this sequel to the original Star Wars would earn over 500 million at the worldwide box office. By the way, that's just roughly two thirds of what A New Hope did back in 77. The four films that Harrison shot right after A New Hope and prior to Empire Strikes Back were talking Heroes, Forrest 10 from Navarone, Hanover Street, and The Frisco right. Kid had all underperformed at the box office.
0: Yeah, it was it was funny. I remember I saw all those films mm-hmm. in the theater because of Harrison Ford, but none of them did well. And so his his Q rating was going down. There we go. Where were the but then Empire came out mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden but then another thing with the Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. He was never happy with that character. And he would always say how, you know, he didn't want to be typecast. And that's why he did all these other films right. that were so far away from Han Solo. But if you think about it, Indy has a lot of Han Solo in him. He
1: does, he does. But to circle back to your comment about the cabinet maker, the shelf maker, yeah. This is a guy <laughs> who approached Hollywood in a very realistic fashion. And right. look you know, four films in a row, not making money. And it's like, I need some job security, you know? And just the whole notion of here, these two guys, you know, it's George Lucas. I've worked with him. He's Steven Spielberg, you know, and they're offering me a role that, you know, in a film that's supposed to have two sequels. It's like, that's a very sweet gig after, you know, a little bit of safety and security after a few years of stumbles there. And also don't feel bad for Tom Selleck. The original Magnum P.I., proved to be a long-running hit over at CBS, and, and to smooth over any bad feelings about the loss of Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm. Selleck was allowed to create his own production company, TWS Productions, which stands for Thomas William Selleck Productions, I and then got cut into some of that sweet, sweet Magnum P.I.,
0: you know. Uh, oh, was he, did he get a, a back-end um, deal Yeah, on it? Uh, well, after Because you hear fact, things yeah. about, like... Um, Angela Lansbury, how she did all these shows and she never had a piece of the show. And so she ended up with nothing Mm -hmm. at the end of it. But see, Tom was smart enough or maybe they felt guilty enough. I think that there was, you know, especially when Raiders became Raiders and it
1: was just a like, oh. Also... It's important to point out here that while Magni P.I. was on a hiatus following its second year of production, Selick flew off to Yugoslavia, where he then shot his own Indiana Jones-esque film for theatrical
0: the release. The High Road to China.
1: Which, by the way, did you see the title that it was released under Overseas? No, I didn't, Oh, no. God. Do you want to talk about salt in the wounds? They, seriously, this is the title for overseas. Raiders of the End of the World. <laughs> so Warner's releases High Road to China stateside on, on March 18th, 1983. Uh, it doesn't do all that great. I, it takes in $28 million in ticket sales, costs 15 to make, so not
0: great. But it did show that he would have done a really great job as Indiana Jones.
1: This is true. And over the past 20 years or so, there has been some talk about trying to set things right, trying to find a way to officially fold Tom Selleck into the world of Indiana Jones. In fact, in in between... Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, the when that was released in May of 1989, and when Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was released in May of 2008, there were a number of ideas uh, for sequels tossed around. And I know of at least one treatment for a fourth Indiana Jones film that was written to pair up Harrison Ford and Tom Selleck with the idea that Selleck was supposed to have
0: played Ford's brother. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm just telling you. <laughs> then they're throwing away all the canon of young Indiana Jones.
1: And I get that. And remember, this is just a treatment. This is not a script per se. But I, okay, I, I have I, okay, no idea okay. which state... Indiana Jones's brother, Wisconsin Jones, I, that's, I don't know.
0: That's, that's true, because when the mother died, Indiana went on his own and didn't talk to his father, mm. so it's very possible that his father had a, a family. Okay, that would have been pretty cool. I would have loved to seen the two of them be adversaries, so to speak. The
1: problem is I have seen the log line on this, and I have been chasing this treatment for... 15 20 years at this point. I mean, I I've got oh, copies okay. of three maybe four of the Indiana Jones films that were scripted but not shot. But it's one of these things where it's like that one. I want to at least read the breakdown. And right. uh, before we we close here tonight folks, d- given that we you know, obviously, you know, look at owned by Disney, we should mention how Magnum Pi actually impacted the Journey into Imagination Pavilion at Epcot? Uh, have you heard this story?
0: No, I have not heard. How can Magnum Pi be part of Journey to Imagination? Okay, what was 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 Figment a sidekick or something? Fignet was Higgins.
1: You you are so close. You are so close. Oh really?
0: Okay. <laughs> All right. It's October
1: of 1981, and Tony Baxter, the lead creative on uh, the Journey into Imagination Pavilion at Walt Disney World. I mean, we we are now like 18 months out from it opening, and Tony has a problem. He knows that the DreamFinder, the host of the Journey into Imagination Pavilion, has a small purple dragon for a pet sidekick. But Tony doesn't know what this character's name is yet. He's mulling this over, but he's at home, so he turns on his television And what's on CVS that night? It's an episode of that brand new hit show, Magnum P.I. And on this particular episode, Magnum has snuck a goat onto the grounds of Robin (laughs) Master's lavish estate in Hawaii. Which, of course, upsets Higgins, the caretaker of Master's estate. And and that role was... Magnum. Yeah, John Hillerman did a wonderful job. Oh, he was just so great. Great fun. Great fun. But something is eating the rare tropical flowers in the gardens oh no. at the master's estate. And so Higgins calls Magnum on the carpet and Magnum is trying to play it off. It's like, no, no, no. You're imagining things. There's nothing out there <laughs> eating, you know, and, and Higgins's response is, don't tell me this creature is a figment of my imagination. Figments don't eat rare tropical flowers. <laughs> and Tony Baxter sits up on the couch at home. It's like, figment, the, the name of the dragon is figment.
0: That's hilarious.
1: Now, uh, folks, if you want to actually watch this episode and see that moment, it's I want to say de- the name of the episode is Dead Man's Channel. It's season two, episode two. But yeah, you can actually see the moment that that inspired Tony Baxter to come up with Figment the Dragon for the Journey into Imagination. Wow. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Looking at Lucasfilm. And in two weeks' time, when Brian and I regroup, uh, we will have both... Have seen the movie. Dial of (laughs) Destiny. And very, very much looking forward to this. And again, if anybody has any info out there about that, again, I love that. That story that Harrison Ford shared in in October of uh, two thousand eight about the the original idea George had for Indy five that was crazy but great. Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, love to hear that as well. But in the meantime, Brian, until we we regroup and record another podcast, where can the nice folks find you on social media?
0: Well, I'm still doing um, what's the name of it? Twitter, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can find me at uh, Geek with Children, but Children is spelled. C-H-I-L-D-R-N. And, um, you know, I'm going to... Especially when I go to the Comic-Con, I'll be going to San Diego Comic-Con. I'll be... Um, Putting a lot of stuff on on Twitter and and other stuff. Oh, very cool. Up there, very cool. So, mm, yeah, okay. You're you're not going to go this year, are you? Because they're canceling everything.
1: I have been doing so much <laughs> traveling lately. I mean, this past weekend, put 700 miles on the car driving down to Jersey Ooh, for. Wow. Well, no, no, no. Wait, okay. The week prior to that, because I was doing the Dayton Disneyland thing, doing the time. In fact, I I talked about. Star Wars and, and the stuff in the the, the Disney parks at, at one of my presentations there. But cool. uh, between running Nancy out to Kansas City, driving back to Dayton to do my presentations, driving back out to Kansas City to collect Nancy, driving up to Marceline to visit Walt's hometown, a boyhood home, and then home to uh, New
0: Hampshire, 4,250
1: miles on the car. Jesus. So...
0: Okay, well, I guess Hallmark will trump Comic Con any day. Uh, I just
1: again, <laughs> I have to stay home and work. But but again, I will love to hear what you see there, and we will, you know, the, the great fodder for for future looking at Lucas and yeah. Okay. Oh, speaking of social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram oh, as right. Jim Hill Media, uh, and over on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. Uh, look forward to seeing you there. By the way, again, we got some other shows here. We'd love you to check out. We have Disney Dish, which I do with Len Testa. We have Fine Tuning, which I do with Drew Taylor, who, by the way, has his own wonderful uh, Mission Impossible podcast, uh, Light the Fuse, that he does with Charles Hood. Uh, we also have Marvel Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams. Also has his own show, very much worth checking out. Thirty Second Street, which is about Madison Avenue and all the evil things they do to make us buy stuff. <laughs> and speaking of buying stuff, if you, oh no, if you you like. What you've been hearing here today, if you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be very, very helpful. And uh, beyond that, if folks, if you could do Brian and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and recommend the show you're listening to right now, looking Lucasfilm, that would be helpful. And I guess that's going to do it. Okay, we finally okay. finally got one out the door. Well, thank you for listening tonight, folks. Thank you. No, 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 no really enjoyed hanging out for a while. So yeah, all right, we will be back soon.